XX Equals is a focused, user-centered innovation collective within Canadian Ford, and this is our podcast. Our aim is to close the gap between perception and reality when designing for women. So jump in and join us as we talk to some of the leaders, experts, and trailblazers in this space. Hello and welcome to XX Equals podcast. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Christine Madler, and Christine is a PhD researcher at the UCL School of Pharmacy at University College London. She's focusing on how males and females respond differently to medicines, and she founded Sex in Science earlier this year to address the sex and gender research gap in science, healthcare, and well-being. Welcome, Christine. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And this is such a fascinating topic. I feel very privileged that we've we've found you and we're able to have mm-hmm. this conversation. Oh, no, thank you, Mel, for giving me a seat at your table. This is really fantastic and really looking forward to being in conversation, getting stuck in with you and addressing all things sex and gender. It's a really challenging area, this. And I'd, I'd be very interested, as I'm sure our listeners would be also, to understand a little bit about your background and your career so far and mm. what it was that drew you to this space. Mm. So I graduated from the University of Greenwich um, in 2016. I did my undergrad in pharmaceutical sciences. I then interned um, in Estee Lauder companies as like a quality assurance chemist doing really little bits and bobs, but I had a fantastic time there, got loads of things off discount, Um, but I digress. Um, I then did a master's in UCL School of Pharmacy, which is where I'm based now as well. Um, That was in pharmaceutical formulation and entrepreneurship. I really wanted to um, marry both the science aspect and the entrepreneurial business side that I think I still have in me. Um, And how does basically pharma make money from medicines and why is money important to basically develop the drugs to get into our medicine um, cupboards at the moment. And then I did medical writing after a year with my PhD supervisor as well. And then now he convinced me to basically stick on um, stick on with him and pursue the PhD, which is where I'm where I'm at now. And how how was it sort of on that journey, which sounds quite quite varied and really interesting. I love this idea of how of looking at the commercialization inside mm. science because I think um, I think that's an area within certainly within our pharma clients that we see as changing quite significantly, particularly mm. as we see more purpose and transparency coming into the business world. So mm. it's an interesting juxtaposition there. But but what was it that really attracted you to this area that you're you're focusing on now? Mm. Um, as in my PhD project? Yeah. Yeah. So um just delving in on that, my PhD basically aims to identify why males and females respond differently to the same medication. Um, so it's not just the drug itself that could um, elicit different responses in the sexes, but it's everything that comes within the drug. So when you've got an oral drug product, it's not just, I'm sure you and your listeners will know this already, but just a little um, bit of education. It's not just the drug itself, but it's other excipients in there that make um that help basically formulate the drug to just dissolve better in um, inside you or just helps with manufacturing, et cetera. It could even be an excipient to help with color coding just so that elderly people are a bit able to identify which drug to take at this particular point. But these like external compounds, these external ingredients that are added to your drug formulation are 
apparently called inert. They're not supposed to have any response in your body. However, recent research has basically shown that not just the drug, but these ingredients actually elicit differing responses to males and females. And this just has such a host of potential consequences, not just in pharma, but if you're using it within the food industry as well, or any other industry that will just formulate these particular ingredients with anything else. It could just um, have differences between males and females. And I think it's really important. Um, I think this is what the whole um, podcast is about, just providing equity between all the sexes and genders, making sure that each individual gets the right medication that they need at the right dose to have the correct effect because no one wants to basically have any adverse side effects. But this is where maybe the power of the pharmaceutical industry um, have their hands on just making sure that everyone has the right medicine that they need. Um, but there's such a host of information and um, like just research out there that maybe not many people really know. And I think this is where my passion truly lies, just educating people that this is a problem and how um, and what can we do to basically overcome this? It's really a fascinating space because there are so many different factors that are influencing this. You have mm. the fact, for example, that um, women are so severely underrepresented or historically have been within clinical trials. Yeah. The lack of understanding um, from that perspective. We have the lack of education in healthcare professionals mm. and, um, you know, what that actually means. And I think even if you take a, a quite a straightforward sort of women's health issue, well challenge shall we say mm. so for example menopause if you look at the education level in our GPs around that space it's it's seriously lacking and there no. is that um that additional resource in terms of menopause clinics which are um you know few and far between geographically and in terms mm. of capacity and so you know it it really brings it home doesn't it because even if you're thinking at that basic level for those those stages in our life that every woman or the majority of women are going to go through at mm. some point that there isn't the representation for that and yet you know we're even in terms of the the drugs that have been through clinical trials and have been proclaimed as safe for women mm -hmm. we don't truly understand the impact of them on our bodies 100 i completely agree with you so women and children older patients they're considered as like special populations if you go into these conferences you hear a talk about how this drug um, responds differently in special populations but then you'll hear the populations that they're covering it's basically women which are 51% of the global population El older people geriatrics which are 20% of the population so these majority bodies that are considered to an ethnic ethnic groups as well they're considered to be um, minorities where where in fact there's just a whole host of people that basically pharma needs to cover and completely agreeing with you like um, massive stages in um, people's lives such as menopause because it affects absolutely everyone whether that you're in the workplace and um, whether you're the person itself undergoing menopause this parameter or challenge isn't even considered in in vitro clinical studies it's difficult to maybe um, act upon in clinical studies because hormones are absolutely everywhere and I understand that that present some difficulty when um, maybe analyzing results per se, but it's really something that needs to be considered. And I, in conferences, when you, when I personally ask this question, the, the hormone, um, the hormone answer is always the one that's um, protruded across. 
However, if you want to give good medicines to like 51% of the population, it really should be considered. So yeah, agreeing with you that I'm unsure why it's such a challenge when so many people are going through it, basically. And when you when you look at it from sort of a helicopter view, as we've we've tried to do around this challenge, you can't help but be drawn to the inevitable conclusion that the reason things are the way they are is beca- is because it's it's men who are you know leading these programs and leading this research and um and there isn't necessarily that representation or that voice at the table mm. for um for for everybody to be talking about what this actually means from their perspective there was a brilliant quote from and you know it's not just in terms of gender uh, there was a brilliant quote i was reading the other day from sam latif who's head of accessibility at procter and gamble and mm. she's blind and she talks about why would why would we be ignored when as a you know we are bigger than the population of china oh and, wow and yet you know there isn't that consideration and inclusivity or accessibility in so many products mm. and you know whether that's pharma or, or beyond into the broader kind of wellness and um, consumer spaces. Mm, 100% I think it's good that we've gotten to this stage where we have um, been able to treat so many diseases that we couldn't maybe like a hundred years ago like even cancer at the moment um, there's drugs for that there's drugs to treat diabetes or even um, a new drug accepted um, for Alzheimer's disease. It's fantastic. And this is with our current um, regulatory guidelines. However, we shouldn't just be satisfied with that because so many people are experiencing adverse drug drug reactions because we're not considering them. So yeah, completely agreeing with that quote that you shared. Why are certain populations being neglected? It's great that we've got these medicines, but we should be doing better and I think that's where the power of research and power of maybe like PhD students contributing towards this new age and new generation of potential research projects that will really equip the future of pharma. Absolutely and there was a conversation we had um, XS equals with um, a few weeks back with um, Joseph Safai who's doing some brilliant work in his um, role as um, sort of head of product development for the fertility business Verso Biosense. Mm. And he he said, so he's got a very interesting perspective because he's a man working in fem, in femtech. Mm. He's he's it's his third startup. The previous two were in diabetes. Mm. And he said he was just his mind was blown by the underrepresentation of women and the the issues surrounding femtech. Mm. And uh, and he he said women need to complain more. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my scenario. And I just it was a brilliant if simple observation I you know we take no for an answer Mm. and I think it's time that that changes wow no that's really really powerful like I've read a study that in phase one and phase two clinical trials there's apparently an equitable equitable um, amount of males and females but once you get to like the phase three clinical trials that's where you maybe see like this more male predominance um but Maybe women do need to complain more. I know that women women have um, different health-seeking behaviours. Maybe we're more persistent in wanting to get the right treatment, but maybe we need to complain more for just voices to be heard. I don't know, but no, that's really excellent perspective. 
there's there's we're hearing reports now that are coming through you know there's been a lot in the press this year around endometriosis for example mm -hmm. and the challenge around um diagnosis i think it was they were saying it was average around seven years diagnosis yeah for endometriosis which is truly um insane and um and you know from a clinical trial perspective there was another example i read of recently where um, it was it was uh, an, a new drug um, in the fight against AIDS, and they were saying that it was they were doing running this trial in Africa, and ten percent of participants were female. Mm. Yet, fifty percent of new diagnoses of um, of AIDS are are, are women. So, wow. you know, we're not um, we're not yet seeing that where it needs to be, but we are starting to see at least the conversation. Um, you know, getting getting out there a little bit more, which is important. But I agree. I think it's it needs the research and it needs the 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 data to back it up and mm. really start addressing this. Yeah, uh, because there's such a bias around it. But mm. what do you think, Christine, from your experiences and and what you've learned to date? What do you think needs to change to drive a more equitable future in healthcare? Mm. I think just education and having these conversations with people that can make decisions in pharma is really, really important because if they don't know that this is a problem, if um, they don't know that there's research in this area, then solutions won't be able to be made, basically. I think having sex as a biological variable needs to be considered and maybe mandatory if you're going to be focusing your research in life sciences. And I think that will help um, towards reaching a more equitable future. So you were um, speaking that one of your guests previously was working in um, in vitro clinical trials. Um, basically, I think in, in animal trials, it's like 60% just use males. Um, and if they have uh, males and females in their animal trials, they'll pull everything together. Um, however, you're not able to see if there's any potential sex difference there because everything is just pulled together. So even in um, early stage um, clinical trials, um, drug development, et cetera, people really need to be considering um, strategies to just use sex as a biological variable, whether that's putting both males and females in there, also just aggregating their data. It's well, all well and good to just pull everything to make sure that, the, to just identify the mean of your results, for example, but making sure like you stratify your data um, against males and females to see if there's any um, difference between them. Um, what what else? Like maybe just genuinely having 50% of your, of your um, clinical trials being women. I know it's really difficult to even um, recruit women into clinical trials sometimes because sometimes the, um, what is it, one of the requirements is like you can't have, you can't be on any oral contraceptives um, because that will maybe complicate the results a little bit more. But then that just basically shuns so many participants into your clinical trials and majority of them because there aren't any oral male contraceptives really, they will be women. Um, so you can't exactly identify how the drug will be um, processed with a person that's taking oral contraceptives. So there are so many strategies that pharma could do, um, even researchers or um, biotechs can do to help contribute towards a more equitable future. I don't think they're that difficult to employ, although I know that there is like some financial stringency, stringency behind that because of just maybe the more people, but then you are giving it to 51% of the global population potentially. So I think the answer is so easy. It's just difficult to implement. I don't know what the hurdles are really. Is it just um, 
I don't know, is it just behaviors or just the norm in pharma that's it's difficult to overcome that barrier? I'm unsure. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you because everything that you talk about, it's just common sense, isn't it? Mm. It's just having that, you know, diverse reflection of the population in which we live. Mm. And actually, if you think about it from the perspective of moving forward and what's next and and you know, the population in the Western world is decreasing. You know, the population in the Eastern world is not decreasing, and Africa is not. Mm. And actually, just that makeup of what our, our world population looks like is going to so significantly shift over the next yeah. few decades that ultimately we're doing everyone a huge disservice if we're not starting to recognise that um, mm. in terms of gender and in terms of broader diversity as well. Mm, 100%. I think a lot of the regulatory bodies look to the FDA as well, the Food and Drug Administration, and then they just create these little nuances for their particular population. But I genuinely, from what I've read anyway, the baseline is really the FDA. And I know that the FDA, FDA are doing more progressive forward thinking and in including um, or a more equitable pipeline in terms of their regulatory sphere. Um, I know that they're um, employing more machine learning algorithms. They've recently set up a new artificial intelligence group, I think in early 2001 or uh, 2001, 2021 or late 2020. Um, and that's really just collecting all data um, to identify any sex difference there. Um, I think it's in the women's health program that they're really employing artificial intelligence machine learning so that there is that progressive thinking, but I'm sure other regulatory bodies are going to be a little bit slower. I, th I think um, from when the FDA was set up, it took them however many years to um, basically include females into all of their pipelines. So I can't imagine what it would take for other regulatory bodies to do the same. I think there are huge watchouts as well with AI and machine learning in terms of, you know, who's looking at that original coding and is that is that diversity being considered yeah. and recruited in terms of the teams who are, you know, doing the initial initial algorithms in that because mm. there's potential for it. To, you know, we've seen in examples of it of it going massively astray in terms of um, not delivering against the, the objectives or not mm. working the parameters that it, it needs to, but um, it's it's great to hear at least that the the conversations are starting, but it does feel like we have a long, long way to mm. go in this. And from your experience of, of working in this sphere, what have you found most challenging? Oh, what have I found most challenging? Really excellent question. I think especially with what I'm doing at the moment, a lot of the studies that I'm comparing my work to are just baseline male rats, baseline male humans, the average 40-year-old Caucasian 70-kilogram male, how this drug responds there. So a lot of the stuff that I'm bringing is just relatively new because I can't really compare it to anything else because the, yeah, just the baseline research at the moment is collectively done on male anything. Um, so I think the challenge there is to, although it's really good to add new information into this field, it's just really difficult to maybe um, in a scientific manner, maybe discuss my work in a more like publication standard, because it's just, there's just not in many information out there. Also, I found that and um, people often question some of this works thinking that it's like a lot of airy fairy, or it's just a, um, it's a sexy field. Um, excuse the pun but but it's like 
it's so important. I just maybe it's difficult to convince these key players to um, consider sex and gender as two different parameters into into pharmaceutical research because everything could be due to just hormones and if it could be due to hormones then it's just something that we have to consider from the get-go i think that's my particular challenge really convincing people that this is an important topic and is a crucial problem and if you want to provide better medicines for people then it's something that we have to consider from the early on i think that's personally what i've challenged been challenged upon and i thought your example earlier about you know people or women who are taking oral contraceptive was a, a really interesting one because you're also looking at you know vast swathes of of women in their 20s um, and 30s you know who maybe aren't um you know for whatever reason don't you know don't want to, to start a family and they're in a scenario where there's huge huge numbers these aren't niche you know in these segments of the population here mm. um that, that are being reflected and how that that pans out against i think you made this this point earlier from a commercial perspective because mm. the, we understand these pharma companies have shareholders they need to deliver shareholder value mm. to, to make profit and i think it's quite an interesting um stance that we saw obviously early on in the pandemic with from az when they said mm. actually we're going to charge we're going to charge our vaccine at cost mm. and they were the only one who turned down to my knowledge I may be wrong now but my understanding is they were the only ones who actually took that stance mm. and others saw it as a commercial prof, you know profit making opportunity and yet interestingly that hasn't been as widely reported as I would expect it that's to. true yeah there wasn't that well AZ have taken the stance we need to replicate that mm. they move away from that that profit making model mm. yeah I don't know why actually I don't know if I have a comment there but it's really fantastic for AZ to do that because it, obviously addressing the global pandemic but oh I don't know actually I don't know how to comment on that <laughs> it's interesting I think the CEO turned around at the time and said if I didn't do this my children would never forgive me oh and and I thought there's there's a, at least there's someone there with a humanity a yeah exactly yeah empathy there mm. and I think you know we're going to see these challenges more and more in healthcare in the future as as healthcare develops and R&D comes up with more answers to these, mm. these terrible illnesses and predicaments that that you know that become part and parcel of everyday life you know you take cancer for example what happens at the point where there is a single pill which can cure breast cancer and and how do you how do you put a price on that? Yes. And how do you know that that is is tailored for your audience? In every other area of the world in which we live, we talk about personalization. You know, mm. have our our iPhones personalized through the cases that we put them in and screens mm. that you know the screensavers we put on the front. There's that expectation of personalization mm. through so many of the services and products that we buy, and yet this is the the one which is going to most fundamentally or seismically affect our, our, our quality of life. Mm. We don't demand personalization. Mm. Funny you say that actually, the research group that I'm, I'm in at the moment, Bassett Research Group, we have an arm. So we have three different arms, four different arms. I don't remember anymore, but we have a digital health arm. We have a biopharmaceutics arm, and then we have a 3D printing um, arm. And 
three-dimensional printing in terms of um, personalised medicine. Um, so have you heard of 3D printing before? Of course, 3D, we have yeah. a whole team and of sort of in our um, in our workshop and prototyping. So and we have a number of 3D printers uh, in our studios. Oh, fantastic! So yeah, exactly. Like 3D, and there's another um, aspect that maybe pharma tends to like shun their eyes on is personalized medicine because they think that sorry not they um, but some people think that personalized medicine is actually a negative thing that oh it's like an airy wishful thinking world but no if you want to give the right medicines to the right patients to the, at the right time we need to be considering personalized medicines be it through um formulating it through an ai algorithm for example or printing it through 3D printing of medicines. I um, mean, there's so much work going on in this space that's really, it's actually really fantastic in delivering exactly what the patient needs. Of course, there's regulatory um, nuances that need to go behind that, but it's something that we really should consider. And the fact that XX equals is also considering 3D printing just shows how progressive this body is. Um, but this sex and genderomics in personalized medicine is actually already increasing. I had just read it early on this year. There's, there's a new term, sexomics. Um, and after three years of being in this research field, yeah, I just heard of it this year. Um, but including sex and gender as a biological variable. And it seems that it's increasing um, throughout the life sciences, psychology as well. So I'm not so like negative um, in my stance that, oh, it's a really bad world. We need to um blame someone but I'm more maybe it's just my character where I'm a bit maybe too optimistic and um, where it actually can get better it needs to hurry up um, and we need more research going contributing towards it um, but the fact that there's um these little things such as like definitions and more increasing research is making me believe that this is a possibility in the near future just making sure that everyone has equity in healthcare deliveries I think I think it is heading it is heading that way and I think there's an inevitability around it really because people want more control and I think people want more transparency and they want more understanding they're not necessarily as willing to 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 accept the status quo mm. and I think will spread into healthcare and we're seeing that in terms of self the level of self-care and how that's increasing mm. and there is um, always that um, I think actually COVID's been been quite interesting from that perspective as well because we've seen historically um, you know perhaps people uh, be more reliant on on you know the professional network of within healthcare whereas now it's it's very much I need to I need to keep healthy I need to to look after myself mm. and people who who do have chronic conditions I think diabetes is a great example of this who actually want to understand how they manage that and how they impact that themselves obviously not in all cases mm. but we are definitely seeing seeing more of that and I think that will be a really interesting area alongside personalization and and people demanding more going back to to Joseph's point around you know, just compla as complaining, complaining more. Yeah. They're not getting the level of service. It's not an equitable field as it stands. So, mm. um, you know, we need to make our voices heard a bit more. Mm. But, um, what do you think we need to see, I guess, change in terms of, of that parity between, you know, between sort of all the genders from a, from a healthcare perspective? Mm. Um, how, how can we really start to 
to drive this forward. Mm. I think you touched on it earlier, making sure that all voices are actually heard, but not heard, but actually like at the table. Um, Pharma, and you can see in all the executive boards, is really male driven. And as you've said earlier as well, it's trickled down into the whole pipeline and how pharma basically works. It's important that um, there's diversity and inclusivity in across all board members, basically. We don't just want a woman there because they have to tick a box, for example, but no, because their voices are valued and they will provide such wealth of knowledge for to maybe represent however many people um, in their field. So I think maybe addressing that would be so important. And I think XX Equals is doing such a fantastic job at that. I've seen like your about us and who the who your people are, and it's just fantastic. They've got such a wealth of knowledge there. Um, and I think it's something that really should be considered right from the top, um, just so that it re is reflected right to how operations work and how science works. Um, we, it's important that that is considered in the whole academic side because academia and pharma work hand in hand. Um, if like a medicine won't be understood or maybe considered how to work in whatever populations, if all the people working there are, are like cisgendered male, basically, or maybe periods won't be considered or maybe estrogen won't be considered if unless someone basically says that someone needs to consider this. So I think ultimately having a voice and being at that table is what's necessary to drive this forward or else it will just become a tick box. Basically, have we included this? Have we included that? But without understanding why there is, why we need to include that particular parameter such as periods, menopause, oral contraceptives, if that's not considered, if that's not understood, then we're just ticking boxes really. I couldn't agree more. I think that space around femcare and periods in particular is really, really interesting. We've had a couple of our um, team members who are recent graduates who have done um, their final year projects in, in those spaces mm. uh, have massively struggled within their um, further education establishments around ethics approval to work on period related projects. Mm. So firstly, it blows my mind that you have to go through ethics approval for something that happens for 35 years, once a month, pretty much for every woman. Yeah. That, you know, that in itself is just stunning <laughs> when equally um, these individuals have told me of other projects they've seen around erectile dysfunction that haven't been asked. You know, what is it that is so upsetting and how do you need to protect vulnerable people who are having periods every month? Mm. Well, if, if that's the case, that's 51% of the population that needs protecting, mm. which is clearly not the case. And um, an area that's so underrepresented and so ripe for innovation as well. 100%. So there's these ingrained biases that are happening in, in educational establishments in this country, mm. which are are not being addressed and are um, being allowed to behave in inappropriate ways in my in my perspective in my perspective mm. and then I think you know that point you make around what boards look like and we've seen a lot of emphasis on boards and, and trying to get greater gender diversity and broader diversity on boards and we've seen the Hampton um, Alexander report here in the UK about women on boards and, and we're starting to see better representation, but there's still a huge amount of those, um, those you know, FTSE companies and AIM companies 
who are of the of the point of view of saying, right, well, we've we've got a woman on our board now, so we've ticked that box. So mm. on. Um, it it needs to be understood what women bring to the party. And I've worked with healthcare businesses which are working specifically on women's products, where the overwhelming majority of the R and D team, so I'm talking ninety percent of the team, are men, mm. and often, as you say, very um, very sort of one dimensional in terms of um, you know we've seen recruitment in in the image, you know, from that um, cis cisgendered perspective and. Mm. When um, when challenged on it, the the conversation often takes the line along. Well, well, actually, you know, we're the right people to do this because we're not bringing any bias to this. We're just working purely off the research perspective. But for me, that just doesn't wash, because ultimately, as a woman working on, for example, I don't know, a period related project, mm. whilst you're doing the insight. The questions that you're going to be able to ask and the, the understanding and the empathy that you're going to be able to bring to that scenario is significantly different from if there was a, a 40 year old man asking yeah, well, a old girl or an 80 I mean hopefully that wouldn't happen because that's just clearly inappropriate um, but it's a very different scenario the ability to challenge the ability to to um, to really sort of get to the nub of the the issue and actually just be able to relate to it on some levels, exactly. understanding that our experiences are not necessarily the same as everybody else's. Exactly, the relevant experience and mm. how then in turn create allyship and bring um, you know for us XX equals it's not a female only platform specifically we've structured it in a way seventy five percent of the team are female mm. so they are enough of a mass to feel the confidence to have a voice and bring that voice to the table but 25 mm. percent of our team are male mm. and all allies and they are brilliant and they're curious and they want to understand and they want to create a better world as a result for everybody mm. and that's just as important as having women in the picture exactly. but I think people who are dismissing that or thinking it's just a tick box exercise mm. are just missing the point yeah, I don't, I, there, exactly, I don't, I can't agree anymore, because what's the point of that then, if it's just a tick box exercise, you get garbage in, you get garbage out, to be honest, and you were saying earlier about endometriosis and period products um, and clinical trials, and if I could just share a fact as well, um, for every nine clinical, or nine research projects based around erectile dysfunction in the clinical trial space, so every nine that gets accepted, only one gets accepted for endometriosis. So when when maybe a all male board member working on a period product say that they're not being um, biased because they're based on research, research itself is biased anyway. So it's a whole biased field. So we, in order to maybe remove this bias and have a sex and gender lens on, we need to shake it up a bit. We need to um, transform current regulation we need to transform how we currently work in this research and pharma field so yeah completely agreeing with you there needs to be some act of empathy understanding and re relatability when addressing such and important topics and going back to the commercial argument 80 mm. percent of consumer decision making in the household is that is done is you know done by females mm. have um, i think it's 92 percent of over-the-counter medicine bought by women and it's in the region of 80 
I think it's somewhere between 80 and 83 percent of all family healthcare decisions are made by women. Wow. So this isn't just something that should be done on the basis of the fact that it's the right thing to do, even though it is, mm-hmm. a commercial argument for it as well. Wow. So it, it works across both fields. And hopefully as that gets understood further, we'll start to see more emphasis there because mm. You know, for, you know, for those big pharma and their, their shareholders, if I was a shareholder in, in one of those companies, I'd want to know why they're not um, investigating these, these, you know, commercially viable product solutions, which would give them a genuine point of difference against their competitive set. Mm. So hopefully we'll start to see a bit more of that come through. Mm. But I've got one more question I would like to ask you, Christine. It's been absolutely brilliant. I have a feeling we could just talk about this all afternoon. No, genuinely, I believe so as well. Honestly, it's been such a pleasure already. But yes, please, what was the question? Tell me what, from the point that you've got to now, what you've learned about since you graduated over the last five years, what would you say to your younger self now, going back five years from what you've learned? Wow. If I could just say to my younger self, like continue to work with people. The PhD is such an independent project, but it will be so valuable if you just continue to work with people. And collaborating is just such an important thing, not just in research, but just in life itself. Talk to people, um, work with people actively, just as well, maybe bringing empathy. And even though science is really not that empathetic, but really bringing the humane side and in this PhD world, it's really, it really doesn't have to be so dog-eat-dog. Dog. The only person that you have to be was yourself yesterday. Like, stop comparing yourself to other people. So I'm, I'm now preaching to my own self. Christine, why were you like this? Um, but it's just, people are so valuable and it's just such a fantastic opportunity to work with good people. And yeah, the PhD is so independent, but the opportunity to work with people is just what will make it so worthwhile and I think that's the same with um, maybe a lot of things maybe you just your head stuck in the clouds through the trees whatever if you're just looking at your working with yourself but you need people to um I don't know what it, I don't know how you call it you need people to basically correct you in a positive way and I think that that's what I've experienced so far in my PhD and I would tell my younger self as well that's brilliant advice I think I think it is so true I always, I always say to my, my when we have conversations on this topic with, within the team, mm. the team, I always say to them, you know, we are always, we're always our own harshest critic. Mm. If we had a friend who spoke to us the way we speak to ourselves in our inner monologue, we would be saying, why have I got this toxic person in my life? I have exactly. to cut them off. No, yeah. They're awful. They're awful. <laughs> we accept that from ourselves. Mm. I think it's really, really true. But also this point around collaboration. If we work together and if we create more of a force around this, I think there's just so much more impetus to to change the status quo and to disrupt. Mm, We can go further whenever we're together. So completely agreeing with that. Christine, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And in terms of if anybody um, who's listening today wants to get hold of you, what's the Mm. best way to do that? Um, they can contact me through Sex and Science, um, which is a little platform that I've created. You can either do that through Instagram. I'm operating more so in there because the scientific community um, and yeah, scientific community and Instagram is just so wild and transformative. I absolutely love it. Or you can contact me. Can I share my email now? Is that 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can contact me at christine.madler.16 at ucl.ac.uk. If you want to get in conversation, I'd be more than happy to talk with you. Well, it's been so, so wonderful to speak with you today. Honestly, thank you so much for providing me a seat at the table of XX Equals. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening, please rate, review and subscribe and keep your eyes peeled for our next episode. 